1: Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday as we gather to worship and hear the Word of God proclaimed. You can learn more about our church at groundedandgrowingradio.com.
2: We're gathered here today at Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. And most of that name probably makes a great deal of sense. It probably makes a lot of sense to somebody that might be driving by reading Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. Orland Park, well, that's the town that we live in, so that part makes a lot of sense. We know where Orland Park is. Christian, we have a a, a significant understanding. If you have any sort of even brief understanding of what Christianity is or the church is, you know what Christian means. It signifies one that has been saved by Christ Jesus, one that's been bought by him, one that belongs to him. It means a a follower of Jesus Christ. You probably understand that church part. That's a recognizable word. It's the place where the redeemed of the Lord gather together to to worship God. It is actually that body bought by Christ Jesus, that body as it exists in worship on the Lord's Day and Sunday, and as it's... scattered throughout the world, throughout the week, you get that that word church, but that word reformed might be the confusing word. If you were at Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, what's that reformed all about? I could talk your ear off about what it means to be reformed, and I probably would if you'd let me, but you know, we have... A service we have to get to the end of at a certain point. So I'm going to focus on just a couple of things as it relates to being Reformed. But if you want to talk more, let's talk about what it means to be Reformed. And if you want to understand a little bit more about what it might mean to be Reformed, one of the places to go might be to the gray Psalter hymnal that you see in your pew right in front of you. It has in the back the Reformed creeds or confessions. Or if you were to talk to me or Dan, I'm sure we could find copy of that, because you could read through the Heidelberg Catechism and the Canons of Dort and the Belgian Confession to understand what some of the distinctives are of the Reformed tradition, and you'd understand that a great deal of what Reformed Christians believe are shared in common by by the majority of Christians, but you'd also come to understand some of the distinctives about what it means to be Reformed. And as I considered it this past week, I thought that it was wise for us to focus on just three of those distinctives about what it means to be a Reformed Christian. So here are the three things that we're going to be talking about this morning, distinctive aspects of what it means to be a Reformed Christian. Reformed Christians live distinctively as it relates to salvation, as it relates to Scripture, and as it relates to sovereignty. Salvation, Scripture, and the sovereignty of God. And so those are the three things that we're going to be talking about Uh, Salvation, Scripture, and Sovereignty. So first, salvation. One of the distinctives of a Reformed Church and of a Reformed Christian is that we love to stress the fact that God saves by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Salvation is an act of God from the very beginning to the very end. Salvation is an act of sheer grace. It's something that God accomplishes. And it's something that is stressed in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, which we read at the beginning of the message this morning. It is a huge stress in the book of Ephesians and in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's consider what it is that Ephesians chapter 2 has to say to us. Ephesians 2 makes it clear that before we came to Christ Jesus, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The Bible says that those who aren't in Christ are dead in their sins. And when Paul says that we're dead, he means dead, actually dead, ceased to be. He's announced the time of death, and it was actually conception for those who are not in Christ Jesus. It means that we have no power to save ourselves, in and of ourselves. It means that we follow our passions. It means that we are, uh, are dead in our ways of thinking, in our ways of acting. And you can see that in the world in which we live. The symptoms of death, as recorded by Ephesians chapter 2, are everywhere. Following the ways of the world, that's what verse 2 says. Having an inclination toward evil or the cravings of the sinful nature. All of this indicates that for those who are not in Christ, their father is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the enemy, the devil. This is the way that we were. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 says among whom we once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this is so helpful, right? Because as, as we're hearing Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, in Ephesians chapter 2, describe the life of one that does not yet trust in Jesus Christ as a dead person, the temptation is maybe to have this us versus them mentality, right? But the reminder here is, no, that was every single one of us before we came to a saving faith in Jesus. Not a one of us had the power to save ourselves. Not a one of us had the power or the ability or the might to redeem ourselves. We were in the exact same place as the rest of the world before God acted. Before God acted to save and to redeem us. Our hearts were just as the world's hearts Described in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, as deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The devil is in those who are not in Christ. And he has confused them so that they walk in sin and in death. They're in the realm of sin. They delight in sin. In their pursuit of pleasure, they sin. And in their thinking, they defy Christ Jesus. And that was you and me. That was you and me dead in our trespasses and sins before coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And then in verse four, this entire section of scripture switches. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Because you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, we needed God to act We were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Hallelujah. We needed the grace of God because grace and grace alone could save us. Grace and grace alone from our God could make us alive when we were once dead. We were stuck in sin, we were dead, but God, when we were dead, made us alive. This is what Christianity is about: understanding how great the grace of God is and how completely He has saved you. And this is what it means to be a reformed Christian. To be one who says, I am so amazed by the grace that I have received in Christ Jesus that I will be certain not to believe, not to teach, not to think that I had any part in making myself saved, but that God saved from the very beginning to the very end. Let me tell you a story about this. I remember when I was a sophomore in college, I took a philosophy of religions course. And it was taught by a professor who was not reformed. And as I sat down, he was a great guy. I I liked him an awful lot. And he loved to make fun of me for being reformed. And so he started the first class. There were only like eight or ten of us in the class. It was a small seminar class. And he goes, ah, I see Mr. Bukema is here. He said, my goal by the end of this class is to make sure Mr. Bukema is no longer reformed. (laughs) And so that's what he tried to do for a semester. He's like, you keep on I'm stressing this whole election thing. He's like, all I'm trying to say is, you were very sick. Every one of us, very sick in sin. And God had the cure. And all I'm saying is that, is that God brings the cure to us. He puts it to our mouth. All we have to do is open our mouth and, and take the cure. That's the only part of our salvation that we play.
1: Today's message on grounded and growing in Christ will continue in just a moment. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, to listen to other messages from our audio ministry, or to make a financial gift of any amount, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. That's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This audio ministry is made possible by gifts from listeners like yourself, and we greatly appreciate all those of you who continue to make it possible to share this work with listeners across Chicagoland. Now let's return to today's message...
2: And Ephesians 2 stresses the fact that this is a pure act of grace. If you're tempted to miss it, just listen again to the words of verses 5 and 6 and 7 and 8. Even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Do you see? Grace is repeated and repeated and repeated, and then in case we're wondering what the, what is meant by grace... We're reminded, this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. We have been redeemed from the powers of the devil, we have been saved from death and made alive, we have been taken out of sin and the realm of darkness and brought into the marvelous shining light of grace and we have done none of it ourselves our Lord and our Savior has redeemed us by his grace and by grace alone and the only way that any one of us will ever be saved or redeemed is by pure grace grace alone and by faith alone the gift of faith given to us Faith, that that thing that joins us to Jesus Christ. So all that he has earned for us is ours. And this is all accomplished by Christ alone. Reformed Christians love to stress that we haven't saved ourselves. That God must save and God alone. That it's not what my hands have done that can save my guilty soul. That it's the grace of Christ alone. This is an essential aspect of what it means to be reformed by grace through faith. And that's the first thing that we're going to be talking about this morning. A reformed church has a distinctive Approach To talking about salvation And that distinctive approach is to deny That we have any part of it Because that's the way that the scriptures speak So first, salvation There's a distinctive talk about salvation And it's a biblical talk about salvation Grace and grace alone The second thing that I want to stress Is that a reformed uh, church And reformed Christians understand That it is only the scriptures That are our final authority It is only the scriptures that are our final authority. There is no authority... Uh, above or next to the scriptures in the course of our lives the scriptures alone are our final authority and the scriptures are sufficient now there is a helpful teaching tool that's called the belgic confession that talks about the sufficiency of scripture and i think that we can pull that up on the screen right here article 7 the belgic confession talks about the sufficiency of scripture let me read to you these some of these words because this is just a really helpful concise statement that says it better than i could We believe that this Holy Scripture contains the will of God completely, and that everything that one must believe to be saved is sufficiently taught in it. For since the entire manner of service which God requires of us is described in it at great length, no one, even an apostle or an angel from heaven, as Paul says, ought to teach other than what the Holy Scriptures have already taught us. For since it is forbidden to add to the word of God or to take anything away from it, it is plainly demonstrating that the teaching is perfect and complete in all respects. Therefore, we must not consider human writings, no matter how holy their authors may have been, equal to the divine writings. Nor may we put custom, nor the majority, nor age, nor the passage of time, or persons, nor councils, decrees, or official decisions above the truth of God. For truth is above everything else. That's a helpful statement. Nothing, nothing is equal or above the holy scriptures. Nothing, not the will of the majority, not the age in which we live, not the, the passage of time, not any person, no council, no decree, no official decision, none of that is above the truth of God. For God's truth is above everything else, and God's truth is contained in the Holy Scriptures. And let's hear what it is that God's Word has to say about this. 2 Peter chapter 1, 16 to 21, tells us about the importance of the Holy Scriptures. We're told in 2 Peter 1, 16 to 21, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. That's 2 Peter 1, 16-21. And 2 Peter 1, 16-21 gives us three reasons that Scripture and that Scripture alone should be our final authority. The first reason that Scripture should be our final authority is that the Bible is true. The Scriptures are true. 2 Peter 1, 16-21 says, We didn't, f- we didn't follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. This is something that is stressed throughout the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament. We saw Jesus. We, we were able to, to touch him. We were able to observe him with our eyes. We saw him. We saw him die. We saw him rise again from the dead. We are eyewitnesses of this. And Second Peter says, we're not making this up. This isn't some cleverly invented story. I actually, I heard the voice of the Lord as I was following Jesus. I saw the transfiguration on the holy mountain. I witnessed Christ Jesus. And everything that I've seen, that's what I'm recording for you. These aren't clearly, cleverly invented stories. This is true. This is the Word of God. They lay out the stakes. They say this means that if this stuff isn't true, it isn't helpful. You know, some people, some people will say, you know, I don't, really, I don't believe that, that the Bible is inspired, but I still believe that it's a helpful book. That's something that I hear with a fair bit of regularity. I don't believe the Bible is inspired. I don't believe that the Bible is infallible, but I still think it's helpful for people to read. Well, if it's not true, it's not helpful. If it's not true, it's just cleverly invented stories, and therefore it is unhelpful. But if it is true, it is saving. And since Scripture is true, it is saving. And so Scripture and Scripture alone must be our final authority because Scripture is true. These aren't cleverly devised myths. These are true stories. This is God speaking. Reason number two that Scripture and Scripture alone should be our final authority, Scripture is certain. (coughs) Peter talks about, talks about hearing the voice of God. And then he says this in verse 19. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, the commentaries about this passage of Scripture say that either this means that the Scriptures are more certain than the word of the Old Testament prophets throughout the Old Testament and therefore utterly certain. Or it means that the Old Testament words of prophecy are verified by what the apostles have seen and therefore the Scriptures are utterly certain. I think it's that second thing. That the Old Testament prophets were speaking about Jesus. Jesus came and the apostles saw it. And therefore, the words that have been given from the Old Testament about the one who is going to come. The fact that the Bible is always telling us about Jesus. And the fact that then Jesus came fulfilling everything that was said about him in the Old Testament. He confirmed it. And then he, he said he was going to go to the cross. That he was going to die. That he was going to rise again, defeating death. He confirmed that through his death and through his resurrection. It proves that all of the words of Scripture from the very beginning to the very end are utterly certain. That these words you can stake your life on. They are true and completely certain. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that's as certain as the word of God. You can stake your life on it. And the third reason that the scriptures alone should be our final authority is that they were written by God. This is why they're true. It's why they are certain. Verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. Peter is saying here that the scriptures are the work of those who wrote it as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. That's why we can say Peter wrote 2 Peter, but not deny that God wrote 2 Peter. Because Peter was carried along by the Holy Spirit of God as he was writing it. The scriptures were written... This is the way that the church has put it. The scriptures are the words of God in the words of men. The words of God in the words of men. But scripture is the word of God. It's the the words that God wrote through the hands of these servants of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And scripture is true and it is certain because it's God's book. It's the one book that God wrote by the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. And so scripture must be our final authority. You know, the reason that I, I, I mentioned the Belgic Confession at the beginning part of this is that, It becomes so easy for us to trust an authority other than the Scriptures. And the list that the Belgian Confession gives to us is is really helpful because those are all the things that we're tempted to trust in alongside of or above the Scriptures. But custom cannot be placed alongside of the Scriptures or above it. The majority opinion cannot be placed alongside of or above the authority of Scripture. The age that we live in cannot trump the words of Scripture. Oh, that was just written to a time long ago. Well, was it written by God? Then it applies to you today. Nor the passage of time, or persons, or councils, or decrees, or official decisions. None of that is above the truth of God. As Reformed Christians, we say, the Bible, and the Bible alone, is our final authority. That's what guides my life as a Christian. That's what guides the church. And that means that that means that one of all of our responsibilities is this. It's it's part of why at the beginning of every sermon, I pray, Lord, if anything that I say doesn't come from you, please let it fall to the ground and pass away and be forgotten, but let everything that is from you remain. Because what is important whenever we gather together is not the words that I say if they are different from the words of the Bible, but they are only words that agree with the scriptures. And if anything that I teach or preach or any way that I live is in conflict with the word of God, I need to stop that. And I need to again submit myself underneath the scriptures. I need to submit myself to to the word of God, to the scriptures, because that is the authority. Not the preacher, not the pastor, not the elders. None of us are a higher authority than the scriptures. All of us place ourselves under the authority of the Bible. It alone is our final authority. The third thing, the third thing that Reformed Christians stress is the sovereignty of God. We love to emphasize the biblical truth that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. And I thought a helpful place for us to look would be Psalm 115 here. Psalm 115 says this, and you can see it on the screen, you can turn there if you'd like. Psalm 115 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Verse 3 says that God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. Psalm 115 testifies to us what the scriptures testify to us, that God is in utter control, that he is completely sovereign, that he is the king, that his throne is in heaven, which means that his authority is over all the earth. And because God is in authority over everything, he is the one that has control over everything. God is in utter control. There is nowhere that you can go where he does not see